are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. But for some, uh, you might. So I wanted to just give you a brief introduction of who um, Stephen is. So Stephen is one of the founding pastors of our church. Um, and about three years ago, uh, we sent him to Boston um, to church plant there. So they've been hard um, at work in Boston. And we've been, I know many of you support and keep up with his work. But it's just a joy uh, to have you guys with us this morning. Um, I want to just commend him to you, those who may not know Stephen as well, just to commend him to you, um, to listen to him eagerly and receptively this morning. You know, oftentimes, I don't know if you've experienced this at, at times that uh, in your past, maybe we're like you hear a pastor preach and then um, and then you get to kind of know him better or know his life and see his life and it almost kind of like diminishes some of the things they were, they were saying. I want to commend Stephen and you to you in this way, that, that if you were to, to be able, those who don't know him, to see his life and the way they live, it would just make you all the more eager to hear from him, that it really just uh, brings so much power. I mean, I, just, I, I can't commend this brother to you enough. The way in which uh, when he was in Birmingham, and, and I, I know the way he lives now in Boston, he lives so powerfully for the gospel. And he's such a model and was so inspirational to myself and to many uh, in our church just while he was here. And so just want to you to hear him eagerly this morning. And we love you, brother. Man, we're so happy to have you. Um, Matthew chapter 6 is where Stephen's going to be preaching from. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. So I'll give you a second if you're going to turn, if you're going to turn there or look that up. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15 starting in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others for their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Morning. That's usually pretty good. I usually if I have to say, say that again, which is so cheesy, and I promised I promise myself I wasn't going to do that today. So uh, good to be with you uh, this morning. This is like coming home. Um, we think about coming home. We, we uh, came home for this road trip, uh, and we wanted to be here with you guys this morning. And so when we come to Emmanuel Church, this is home. So uh, so excited to see you. So excited to see all the kids who have grown like weeds. And I know my kids have too, but I keep looking around going, I, I just can't imagine. I know time goes on, people grow, it happens. But um, I'm just blown away and just so excited to be here with you. We uh, I took a road trip down, uh, decided we didn't want to fly, we wanted to drive. So we stopped in New York. I spent a day there, went to D.C., and, but the highlight of the trip was being here uh, with you guys. So thank you for receiving us this morning uh, warmly. For those of you who I don't know, I hope to meet you after the service. Um, and you are part of a great church, and so I'm glad that you guys are here and found your way here um, after we did. And so as, as, uh, as Buster mentioned, we moved to Boston uh, three years ago back in June, and uh, God has done some incredible work in that, that span of three years. Uh, we have been 
completely floored at how God has worked uh, in that. And it has happened through your partnership. It's happened through churches like Emmanuel, individuals in this church who support us. And I just want to say thank you uh, before anything else. Just thank you for your support. Um, these things are happening because of you. And so we moved to Boston three years ago. We started a two-year residency with a church there called City on a Hill in Brookline. City on a Hill is a, a, has a church planting history. Uh, we are the seventh church plant in 10 years. And so a rapid uh, multiplication of churches. And so we are the fruit of that and hope to continue to be a part of that. Uh, and we have some really incredible things that God is doing that may lead us to even be able to plant our first church here in the next couple of years. So you can be praying for that. So moved to Boston, did a two-year residency, began to gather a core group in the fall of 2019. And, uh, and we're seeing God do some incredible things, momentum's happening, and then COVID hits. And we're like, what the heck? This is messing up my plans. Um, this was not in my church planning prospectus uh, to try to fight through a pandemic. And as we began to just consider and pray, like, what is God doing in the middle of this? He really humbled us because we realized that the vision had not changed. Just the how had changed. The mission to, to make disciples had not changed and to love our neighbors had not changed, but just the way we were going to go about it changed. So we scrapped all of our summer plans last summer and just said, what do we need to do? We said, well, let's, let's just connect and serve our neighbors. So we started calling all of our neighborhood partners that we had made some inroads with, and we just said, what do you need? And so one of our major partners is English High School. We've worked with their ESL program, mostly with undocumented families. And I said, what do you need? They said, we, our, our families need food. And by God's grace, we gave $20,000 of grocery help in 2020. Uh, we gave away money we didn't have. Uh, we just said, okay, we're just going to give this. And then a, a partner would call and say, hey, do you guys have a need that you're trying to meet in your neighborhood? I'm like, well, we just met one. I'm not sure if there's any money in the bank. You want to help out with that? So, um, so God was incredibly gracious. Gave out over 2,000 uh, kids' activity bags to the YMCA. Met, just met the needs of countless neighbors, and that happened through through guys like you. And so uh, we began to meet um, in uh, September of last year online three weeks a month, and then in person once a month. We couldn't sing, which was brutal. Uh, and so we got together. We actually videoed Matt Waldrop, who, uh, since his love to you, he was one of the worship pastors here. We had to video him and then show the video on Sunday, and we all just stared at it. And so Matt talked about how it's the most awkward thing in the world to stand there and watch himself lead worship. If you've ever seen any any of the old I worship videos, it was kind of like that. It was just better than nothing. And so we did that for several months, uh, but God has just been faithful to build and bring together a, a faithful church. Um, we began meeting together in person outdoors on Easter, and, and God is doing some awesome things. In fact, this morning, uh, neither Matt nor I are in Boston, and our team is leading uh, the church service together. So God's doing some great things. Um, and as we began to look toward launching last September, we asked ourselves the question, what type of church do we want to be? And so what, is the, what are the first words that we want to communicate to our church and to our neighborhood about the kind of church we want to be? And so we figured, what better words than the, the biggest section of Jesus' teaching? So we spent all last fall going through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we really zeroed in on the Sermon on the Mount because we wanted to be the type of people that God called us to be in extending his kingdom to our neighbors and to the world around us. And as you look at Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're here this morning and you're exploring, you don't know a lot about the Bible, that's okay. You're welcome here. We're glad you're here. Um, even if you don't know a lot about Jesus or the Bible, you probably heard some phrases from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, blessed are the poor. You know, the meek shall what? Inherit the earth. This is participation time. Love your enemies. Judge not lest you be judged. So we've, we've heard a lot of these same phrases, 
And though this is the most famous section of Jesus' teaching, I think it's also the least understood section of Jesus' teaching. And there are three ways that we can really approach the Sermon on the Mount incorrectly. The first way is we look at it as a list of rules for entry. If I do these things, I take these three chapters of Matthew, and I do these things well enough, then I'm going to be able to get in. So if I love my neighbor well enough, if I, if I you know, just don't look at the things I'm not supposed to look at, if I don't get angry, if, if I do these things, I pray enough, I fast enough, I can get into God's good graces. The second wrong way to look at this is just it's an unrealistic standard. So we go the other direction. We say, okay, these are things that are just too hard for me to do. How could I possibly not lust in my heart? How could I possibly live up to the unrealistic uh, standard of believing that anger in my heart is like murder? So we just say, these are really powerless affirmations. These are things that Jesus did, but I'm not really expected to do. Or we take these teachings and we lift them out of the Bible. And we make them mean something that they're not supposed to mean. And we disconnect them from the, less, the rest of the life and ministry of Jesus. We have to understand the Sermon on the Mount the way that Jesus intended it to be understood. Umberto Eco is a, was an Italian medievalist and philosopher, and he talked about when you read an ancient text, you have to take into account the intention of the author's words. You have to take into account the historical moment that the author was writing in. You have to understand the time and the place and the, how a certain word might mean a certain thing. And so really, we can't make words mean what they don't mean. Words are always loaded with meaning. So let's do a little thought experiment. If I were in Boston, I would say New York Yankees, and everybody would boo and throw things at me. And I'd say Red Sox, and they would, they would you know, everybody would cheer. But if I were to say the words War Eagle, about, okay, about half of you get excited. About half of the city gets excited. And so you think Auburn Tigers. If I say War Eagle in Boston, they have no clue what I'm talking about. If I say Roll Tide, I'm going to repent for that later. If I say Roll Tide, <laughs> some of you think about Alabama football. In, in Boston, they're thinking about the tide coming in from the Atlantic. Words have meaning, and they're loaded depending on where you're from and what's being said. And so we have to understand Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in light of what he came to do, that Jesus came to establish a kingdom. He said, in, he said earlier in his Gospels, he said that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, repent and believe the good news that someone is coming to make all things right, both personally and corporately. Personally, we could be made right with a holy God through the forgiveness of our sins, but also a God has come into the world that the kingdom of God would come and make everything just and equitable and right. So how do we understand Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? We understand them as an invitation, an invitation to good news, an invitation to a new and better way of life. And the reason that I chose for us to look at the Sermon on the Mount this morning is it is the crux. It is the very center of the life that Jesus has called us to. It is the Christian life. And when we think about living the Christian life, we often think about what we do for God versus what God is wanting to do in us. And I can tell you God is always more interested in what he's doing in us than what he will do through us. He will always do more in us than he will do through us because it's the inner change of the Holy Spirit in our lives that leads us to live outward lives taking the gospel to the nations. Think about this throughout the Bible. Every single person that God interacted with in the Bible, he did more in than through. Even Abraham, who he said he would make be a blessing. Someone would come and be a blessing to all nations. Think about the work that God did in Abraham. 
Think about Moses and the Exodus, that God did so much work uh, in someone who was a murderer hanging out in, the, in Pharaoh's house to taking him out to the wilderness and leading a people to the promised land. In David, the disciples, even Jesus himself, he did incredible work in. And I believe that God is doing something in this moment. Culturally, spiritually, He's bringing us to a place of dependency as a nation and as a culture. And I believe specifically God is doing something in Emmanuel Church to bring you to a place of dependency upon Jesus. Calling you to cling to Jesus in prayer. And it's times like this that God uses that drive us to Jesus-dependent prayer that he uses to shape us that one day we look back on and think, you know what, if it hadn't been for that circumstance, if it hadn't been for that situation, I would not be the person that I am today. And once we've gone through that season or through that valley, there are one of two choices we could make. We can choose to go back to life as normal, to trim back toward comfort, to trim back toward ease, to trim back toward self-reliance, or we can continue to faithfully and dependently seek Jesus and his kingdom. And this is why prayer is so important. It's why it's so important to Jesus that Jesus basically made a three-part movie in the middle of Matthew. There's three parts to this, to this series. And, and rarely, when you think about a series of movies, is the sequel better than the original, right? Think about some sequels, like Dumb and Dumber had a sequel. We don't mention it. Um, Boo, Boo 2, Medea Halloween, that was, a, it was a sequel. Paul Blart Mall Cop got a sequel. But sometimes the sequel is even better than the original. Anybody watch Sister Act 2? Better than the original. Can I get an amen? Amen. Better than the original. All God's word is God's word, but what Jesus really wants us to understand is that the Lord's prayer is really what prayer is about. This middle section, this apex of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's important because this is how Jesus prayed. This is how Jesus prayed when he was alone with the Father. But also Jesus prayed that we would be one with both he and the Father in the same way. So this is an invitation for Jesus from Jesus calling us to pray. So our big idea that we're going to unpack today is that the Lord's Prayer orients your heart toward God and his priorities. Let me say that again. The Lord's Prayer orients your heart toward God and his priorities. And the Lord's Prayer provides a structure. And in our tradition, we don't necessarily always pray the Lord's Prayer verbatim, but it does provide a structure for teaching us how to pray because how many times do we get distracted in the middle of prayer? We sit down, nothing's on our mind, and all of a sudden we're like, did I pay that bill? Did I put the car in park? Did I shut the garage door? What, what, i got to pay the kids' school's fees. We think of everything under the sun, but the Lord's Prayer gives us a pattern by which we can pray. And it teaches us to long after the two highest values of the kingdom, to love God and to love our neighbor. So let's unpack these together. The first thing that we see is that the Lord's Prayer reorients your heart toward God. We see this in verse 9 where it says, Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. When you pray, you need to remember that you are praying to your Father. Not someone who's distant. Not a God who's uncaring, not, not a boss, but a Father in heaven. And I believe that when we get this out of, out of whack, when this is out of sync, this leads to us praying incorrectly. This leads to what verse 7 says, where it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. 
The Gentiles were those who were outside of God's covenant people. And when they would pray to their foreign gods, they would pray these empty or vain phrases over and over and over again. And they believed that they just prayed hard enough and they just prayed long enough and they just prayed passionately enough. And they said these incantations and these invocations that their gods would finally listen to them. And many of us pray like that. We pray empty, repetitive words with no hearts. It's like sitting at the dinner table with your kids. They're ready to eat tacos. And they're like, dear Lord, thank you for this food, the nurse from our body. And they're running through the words. We all pray like that sometimes. And in fact, verse 8 says, don't be like that. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. How cool is that? We have a God who's completely relational. He's not expecting us to come to him and muster up the right words. He's not to call it, telling us to come to him and, and to be passionate enough, to, to mean it enough. He says, just simply come to me. And that this is the basis of prayer, that we have a God who's called us into a new relationship with him through his own son, that he's your father and you're his son or daughter, and that this changes everything about the way we pray. What's interesting is that Jesus was the first person in the Bible to call God Father. Shocking. The all-powerful God of the universe could be called Father. And this is what you also get in the gospel, an intimate relationship with an all-knowing God who knows what you need. So prayer for us is, is not convincing God. It's not strong-arming God. It's not changing God's mind. So what is it that we're doing when we pray? It's an invitation to be changed. Prayer changes you. It doesn't change God. Prayer is inviting you to change your heart toward God in three ways. And the first way we see is His name. Everybody say that with me. His name. Amen. Hallowed be your name. Lord, hallowed means revered. It means unique. It means other. Now to us, names don't really mean a lot. You know, your name's Nate because your parents like the name Nate. You know, I have a friend who, he named his son Cullen, and he swears he didn't do it after Twilight. I don't believe him. But we, we, that's how we tend to pick names. We see a name we like, a celebrity, uh, someone that means something a lot to us. Uh, but, in, but in the olden times, like ancient times, like your name was tied up in who you were. It, was, it had a lot of meaning. Uh, it always trips my wife out when she hangs out with my, some of my family or people that I grew up with because they'll call me Steve. And my name's Steven. And she's like, you're not Steve. Steven seems responsible. Steve's like the guy at the party. He's like, hey, Steve. Like, he's the guy bringing the drinks. Like, that's a different person. God's name in the same way is loaded with meaning. Yahweh. The, the verb to be, I am what I am, existence itself. And in fact, if you look at the Old Testament, there are 85 different names used to describe who God is. And listen, we don't have time to go through every single one of these names, but I do want to take a minute and read a few of these to you. El Elyon, the Most High God. El Olam, the Everlasting, Unchanging God. El Shaddai, God Almighty, full of, gay, of grace. El Roy, the God who sees. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Tied up in his name is his reputation. And this is a God who, as we pray, we want him to be revered and honored and worshiped for who he is. And so in our lives and in our world, increasingly we want his name to be hallowed. And this starts with how we pray. 
that we glorify His name and pray that He gets the honor that He is due. We do this when we worship, when we sing as a form of prayer, reflecting to God who He is and what He's done, that He has a great name. And when we evangelize and we make disciples, what do we do? We baptize them into what? The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so that every corner of creation will be filled with His glory. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We pray, we have to pray that God reorients our hearts towards Him. As we were praying about going to Boston, our deepest prayer was, God, let this be about You, not about me. Not about proving myself, not about earning something, not about padding a resume, not about any of this, but that Your name would look great. And so are your prayers, are they about God's fame and glory and honor? The second way we're reoriented toward God through prayer is His kingdom. We pray that His kingdom would come. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, the word come, is, it's really interesting because Jesus, didn't He say at one point that the kingdom of God is here or at hand? And He did. He said that, yes, but it's still on the way. So in other words, the description that we're seeing here is that it has come and it is coming. So the word come there, the way to understand that is that we pray that the kingdom would continue to come until the whole earth looks like heaven. Now, this is hard for us to understand because I think if you grew up in Sunday school, you thought, okay, earth bad, heaven good, Jesus comes and he gets us away from earth. But if you look at the way that the Bible describes heaven and earth, it describes something different. In, the, in Genesis, we see that heaven and earth are completely overlapping. So God is with man. He's with Adam and Eve. He said he walked with them in the cool of the night. There was complete, unfettered communion and relationship. But yet rebellion comes in. Adam and Eve sin against God, and they attempt to drive God out of his world. So as they take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not just simply, oh, that looks like good fruit. I'm hungry. It is saying, God, we want your world, but we don't want you. It's pushing God out of his world. And the biblical story is us being given our wish. And we are experiencing that right now as we see disease and death and poverty and oppression and injustice. We are seeing what a world looks like when God is separated, when heaven does not overlap earth. And the biblical story is that heaven is reclaiming earth, that God himself came down, took on flesh, lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserved, and rose again so that one day we would have life in him face to face again. Heaven is reclaiming earth, and one day the heavens and the earth will be restored the way that they should be with us face to face with God. Revelation 21, verses 2 through 4, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the Lord's Prayer calls us to prayerful action. It calls us to live in light of the kingdom and, and live as if the kingdom is coming and live lives to help advance that kingdom. And so the Lord's Prayer kind of keeps us from two ditches that we tend to fall into. We have one side, this prayerless action. We have another side, this actionless prayer. Prayerless action is this idea that we really want the kingdom. 
We want all the things that Jesus promises in the Beatitudes. We want them without the king. We want justice. We want equity. We want mercy. But we tend to believe that those come through the right policies and voting for the right politicians. That we go and tell people about Jesus without the strength of Jesus and we miss the point that God is calling us to prayerfully depend upon him. Or the other side is actionless prayer. There's just something missing between our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. There's some sort of disconnect between head, heart, and hands that we believe the right things, but we don't live lives informed by the right things. Our prayer should be that it should look like on earth, like it does in heaven, that Boston, Birmingham, to the ends of the earth would look like Jesus is king. It also reorients us to his will. Your will be done. Recognize what God is recognizing that what God wants to happen is far better than our plans. Look, we make lousy gods. Some of us can't remember to show up for coffee. How are we possibly going to order the universe? God's best plan is better. Our best plan is, is far, falls far short of God's plan. And our plans don't look like God's plans because if you read the Beatitudes, we wouldn't write that as the way to flourishing. If you, we look at the Beatitudes, we would flip all of that around, but Jesus flips what the world says success and power and who gets in on this looks like. He takes all of that and flips it on his head. We look at words like that, you know, blessed are the meek. I mean, no, 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 it's the powerful. I love what Ray Ortland said. He took the Beatitudes and created the unbeatitudes. This is the order of the world. He said, blessed are the entitled, for they grab what they want. Blessed are the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they shall win. Blessed are the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Blessed are the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Blessed are the popular, for this world lies at their feet. That's the right side up kingdom. And why do we tend to run to those things? Because they look like they work. And they work for a little while, but they were never built to last, and they always fade, and they never satisfy. Because once you achieve those things, you always want better. You always want more. You always want new. Tim Keller says, ironically, the more you look to the, to the things of the world to give you your deepest pleasures and satisfactions, the more frustrating they will be. So a life devoted to pleasure actually does not deliver pleasure. So we see these two kingdoms are at odds. The right side up kingdom says, do this and you're going to win. This is the hustle. You need to do more and try harder. But all that leaves us with is a low-grade anxiety that feels like we're constantly running on the hamster wheel. But what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus' own disciples tried the right side up kingdom. They said, who will be the greatest and he calls a child over to his side. Who will sit at your right hand or your left? He says, those who serve will be the greatest. The upside-down kingdom is that the least shall be the greatest, and those who serve shall be honored. And so the call for us in seeking God's will is to ask ourselves, how will our weakness and self-denial and our tears, and our, as Henry Nowen says, our downward mobility, how will those be the way to flourishing? We think about them, we ask, how does that lead to flourishing? Because that's what Jesus chose. That the cross, a, an instrument of 
execution became our victory. That maybe flourishing comes from the very things that we seek to avoid. And as we seek God's will, He begins to reorient our lives by turning them upside down and shaking loose our idols. Our idols are anything that we would want if we could get them, even if it meant not having God. And so the kingdom, kingdom-shaped prayer is to seek to shape us to live in light of the King and His will. And we see how God will come after us and shake us up when we look at the story of Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob, in, in the best word for him, is probably a scoundrel. Um, I don't know if you know any scoundrels in your life. It's not a word we really use in 2021, but he is a scoundrel. Uh, and, so, and this is why I believe the Bible is real, because it doesn't hide the flaws of people. There is no hero in the Bible but Jesus. Just like in this church, there is no hero but Jesus. That's an appropriate point to say amen, right? Amen. Uh, this guy was a liar and a thief and a deceiver, and he was always trying to manipulate the circumstances to his benefit. And so one night the Lord meets him, visits him, and he wrestles with God all night. So who's going to win that wrestling match? God. And so they're, they're wrestling, and God reaches out, touches Jacob's hip, and puts it out of socket. Now, it's really interesting what Jacob does in that moment. He bear hugs God, and he says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. He said, I want to see you face to face. What happened in the Old Testament when someone saw God face to face? They died. But what happened to Jacob? He doesn't die. He finally got it. God reoriented his heart to the point that he realized that God was all he needed. And God will bring us to a place of brokenness to show us we can trust him, that he is all we need. That what we're called to do is we're called to put our yes on the table and say, Lord, your will be done. And for some of us, that means moving to Boston to plant a church or come help plant a church. We still need more people. That's a pitch. Just, we'll talk about it after if you want to. Um, maybe he's calling you to the mission field. Um, or maybe he's simply just calling you to go across the street and talk to your neighbor or to love your wife or your husband. Putting our yes on the table and saying, Lord, your will be done. When we pray, God changes our hearts toward him, but he also changes our hearts towards ourselves and towards others. The Lord's Prayer reorients your heart towards yourself and other people. We see this in verse 11, how God reorients our hearts towards ourselves. He says, give us this day our daily bread. You have to remember that in this time, there was, there was no refrigeration. Uh, there was no Trader Joe's on the, on, the, on the side of the road. There was no packet of ramen. A little side note, when I was in college, I understood a little bit of this daily bread moment. I was a freshman in, at Auburn, and I lived off a five-pound five can of baked beans for three days. I needed to get paid, and I wasn't paid yet, so I just lived off of that. So um, sorry my mom didn't know that, I don't think. So um, she's here today. Hey, Mom. Um, and so... Most people at this point lived hand-to-mouth like a poor college student. And so uh, daily provision came from what you could grow. When we pray, we need to ask for what we need, and God will provide it. Now, for us, it's not like 30 AD. We're not living uh, wondering where our next meal may come from. And some in this room may be in that spot. I don't want to overlook that. But all of us, no matter how much we have, worry. This is a call to change the posture of our hearts. Because when we really boil it down, most of the time when we think about what we have, we think, you know what, I've got this. 
And it's easy for us to think this way because we work hard. We, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We save our money well. We make the right choices. And maybe we did, but don't we understand how arrogant it sounds when we say that we provide for ourselves? Because who gave you the brains in your skull? Who gave you the ability and the talents to work the job that you do? Who gave you these opportunities? Who allowed you to be born into the family that you were born into? These are all things that God gives. And so the posture we're called to, to come like we're called to come like a beggar, to come before God and say, God, give me my daily bread. And what happens is as we cultivate this posture of need, we begin to trust God, and it changes you because no, you no longer feel entitled. That I don't deserve these things. Everything I've received is a gift. And when everything that you've received is a gift, when you see it that way, you stop hoarding things. Because when we think we earn what we have, we think these are mine to hold versus these are things to give. The second change we see is how we understand forgiveness. It says that when we pray, we can ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. When we pray to God and confess our sins, He will forgive us. What a promise. Our debts are not simply just missing the mark once, but imagine that you have a running tab, and every time you sin, it's like something's being added to this debt that you can't pay off. There used to be a coffee shop on University Boulevard right across from, um, from UAB called Lucy's. It's no longer there. And I was always struck as you walked in, there's this huge chalkboard, and there was this one person who I swore had like $800 on their tab needing to pay for coffee. It seemed like this debt they were never going to be able to pay off. Our sin is the same way. Our debt feels like the same thing. Yet Jesus took that debt, and he forgives that debt. And what we, we see in the kingdom is that the kingdom of God means that debt is, free, is freely forgiven. Forgiveness is freely given. And it's so core to the expectation of the kingdom of God that we're expected to forgive others too. Jesus doubles down on this in verses 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, if we're unable to forgive other people, we don't understand the gospel. So core to the gospel is that we've been freely forgiven. And I think the reason that we struggle is we often think we've got to earn it. We think that when we repent, is that I just need to feel sorry enough. I've got to beat myself up enough. I've got, to, you know, I've got to bring myself to this place where I can say to God, I can't believe I did that, but I'll never do it again. What's the problem with that? That's not grace. That's a promise to do better. Jesus has come, and like the old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. See, forgiveness provides the ground and the opportunity to make a relationship right. And we see that the Father spared your and I's life, that the Son traded places with us so that we could be in His family. The other thing we see is that He says, lead us not into temptation, verse 13. Now, God changes the way that we are able to face hard stuff. The word temptation there does not mean sin because the Bible says God does not lead us into temptation. And, and, but more the idea of a trial. In other words, it's okay to ask God to not face trials. Jesus did this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, what did he say? He said, Lord, take this cup for me. How raw and honest was it that Jesus, looking at the cross, is saying, Lord, I don't want to do this. 
And some of you are facing or have faced some things that I could never imagine. And it's okay to ask God, God, please don't lead me into this. Please spare me from this. Please protect me from this. But what happens when our heart posture changes, we, we take the second half of what Jesus said, that even if you do leave me there, I know you'll be with me. Jesus in the garden said, but if you don't, nevertheless, your will be done. I trust you. You're enough for me. Your will is good. That if the worst happens, it's not evidence that God has left you, but paradoxically, God loves you and promises that he will be with you and he will deliver you from evil. I love what the missionary to China, Corey Timboom, she said this. She said, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Lastly, the Lord's Prayer reorients your heart to pray big prayers. When we pray God's will, it's, we're not hedging bets. We're not saying we're going to be passive in our prayers, but it actually it frees us when we understand that God is our Father, that we can ask for big things. We're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 7, looking at verses uh, 7 and 8 specifically. There are three parallel statements that tell us that we can ask for big prayers. It says we see three things, ask, seek, and knock. And as we do these things, you will find... Uh, uh, the door will be open to you, you'll receive. So ask, seek, knock. I mean, this, this is pretty crazy that we're being invited in to do this. And in case you didn't get it, verse 8 says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. It's almost like the old preacher saying, louder for those in the back. Just make sure everybody can hear this. When you see repetition or parallel in the Bible, in Greek or Hebrew, uh, that is like writing it in bold with exclamation points and highlighting it and typing in all caps on Facebook. They're trying to get your attention. What's being said here? We pray prayers, big prayers with confidence, a persistent confidence, even a bit intrusive when you pray. There was an old Toyota commercial where someone texted in the car and the guy shows up to the guy's house to respond to the guy's text message. He wanted to make sure that that guy heard him. We see a progression in the text. That we, first, we ask when we pray. It's verbal. Seek. You go actively look. Knock. Go to the door. Be bold. Bang on the door until someone listens. And this is how we're called to pray. And this is how children ask for things, right? If you have kids, you know this. They have no hesitation. They don't th if they don't think you heard them, they will find you. If they want a snack or want to watch a movie, they are a heat-seeking missile. They will, they will get what they want. Why do kids do that? Because they know what they want, and they believe that you can and are willing to give it to them. And I think it's partly why we're called to have faith like a child. Because adulthood makes us skeptical. We, over time, we get worn down and the world trains us to doubt everything and everything should be rationally explained. And we think about miraculous things and the fact that there's a God who listens to us, but we're called to approach God like a child because he's our father. And how we approach God, whether we approach him like a boss or like a father, determines the type of prayers we're going to pray. You think about a boss, what's your relationship like with a boss? You apply for a job, right? They may call it a family but it's not a family. You were hired to do a job. They pay you a paycheck for doing your job. If you don't do your job, they fire you. If you do a little bit better, they give you a bonus. But at the end of the day, it's functionally I do and you give. But think about a relationship with a father. You're not, you don't choose to be a part of that family. You're born into that family. 
and God's family, we're adopted into that family. You don't apply to be a part of that. And that radically changes the way that we seek reward from God. If, if my daughter comes up to me and says, Dad, I want to buy mom a gift, but I don't have any money. So can you give me $10? You know, it's not the fact that my, my daughter asked me, and I'm like, oh, you had good intentions, therefore I'm going to give this to you. Now you're $10 more my daughter. No, I give this to her because I love her, because she's mine. When we approach God, we can pray big prayers because He is ours and we are His. What are the big prayers that you're praying? Maybe for yourself. Maybe you, you finally want to be free. There's that one sin that just keeps sticking like a thorn in your side. There's an area you want to grow. You want to see a change in your heart or a change in your marriage or a change in your friendships. What's the big prayer you're praying for other people? What's the big prayer you're praying for Emmanuel? You guys are in a season of change and a season where God can do some incredible things. And I believe the best days are ahead for this church. How are you praying for God to do big things through this church? How are you praying for the kingdom to advance? Or, or for many of you, simply it might be the prayer of like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. How else do you need to, to, to pray kingdom prayers? Maybe it's reorienting your heart to yourself and others. Is there someone that you need to seek and offer or receive forgiveness from? Or reconcile, something you need to repent of? Or lastly, how do you reorient your heart towards God? Maybe you're, you've been in the season where you felt the isolation of, of COVID. I know in Boston it was very dark. We were very isolated from people. And there were points where it was like, it was like man, I'm, I'm struggling, God, to believe that you're good. Maybe bitterness has crept in. Maybe a distance between you and the Lord has crept in. Maybe it's just been a while since you've been before Him. Pray that God would reorient your heart toward Him. Or maybe this morning you're here and you're hearing this message for the first time. Maybe for the first time, the message of what Jesus has done for you has become clear. There's an invitation for you to reorient your heart towards God and give your life to Him and trust the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you so that you could have a new relationship with Him and you could be invited into the life that you are designed to live. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you that we can pray to you. That, God, you invite us to pray to you. You invite us to come to you. That you want us to come to you. And God, we receive, we receive and we are, we are living into that, into that uh, invitation this morning, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would reorient our hearts towards you. That you would help us to see the areas of our life where um, we are living for ourselves, where we're seeking our own glory, or the fame of our own name. And Lord, that we would seek your glory and your name and your kingdom and your will. God, I pray this morning that uh, we would think about how uh, we need to reorient our hearts towards ourselves. What are the ways that we, are, uh, that we are not experiencing your forgiveness? God, the ways that we still try to earn your forgiveness. God, let us rest in the fact that you have forgiven our sins. And God, let us extend that forgiveness to others, Lord. Also, Lord, we pray that we would be people who pray big prayers. Because when we think about the, the things that you are calling us to do and how you're calling us to live, Lord, these are not things we can do upon you We're uh, 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 by ourselves. We are wholly dependent upon you. God, we cannot make our own hearts new. Before you, Lord, our hearts were dead. Before you, our hearts were cold, but you have made us alive in Christ. And so this morning we pray that as we pray, God, as we sing, our, our songs would be, would be a prayer to you, an offering to you. And God, that you would meet us and shake us up and fix our eyes upon your son. We 
pray these things in your name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.